Hello, and welcome to this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Karis Ellison. And I'm Sharon Shu. And today we are starting our discussion of Half His Carcass. Hooray! Yay! <laughs> Which we are so relieved to be talking about because it means we're finally past the trains of five red herrings. No more fish. No more fish. And thank you once again to our friend Angela for joining us for that and uh, making it a much more pleasant experience all around. But yes, today we will be joining Harriet on the seashore. So, Karis. So, Sharon. Would you like to give our listeners a, a brief little sketch just kind of on how this novel opens and what the mystery looks like? Well, talking about the opening of the novel, I want to read the opening paragraph because this is my favorite opening paragraph out of any book that exists. And it really sets the scene for what's happening, which is that Harriet Vane has gone on a walking tour. And it opens like this. The best remedy for a bruised heart is not, as so many people seem to think, repose upon a manly bosom. Much more efficacious are honest work, physical activity, and the sudden acquisition of wealth. After being acquitted of murdering her lover, and, indeed, in consequence of that acquittal, Harriet Vane found all three specifics abundantly at her disposal, and although Lord Peter Whimsey, with a touching faith in tradition, persisted day in and day out in presenting the bosom for her approval, she showed no inclination to recline upon it. It's just, so good. I just love it. Tell me what you love so much. I mean, I love it too, but I'm I'm very curious. Out of out of all the opening paragraphs is is quite a <laughs> quite high praise. <laughs> I it just makes me laugh every time. You can't see me, but I'm grinning so much right now. And I think I like I just it starts out sounding like it's going to be a little bit pompous. You know, mm -hmm. like it's got a bunch of long words in it. It's got like a, that touch of Victoriana about it. And then, then it kind of twists around at the end of the paragraph yeah. where it's like, Lord Peter Whimsey, with a touching faith in tradition, persisted day in and day out in presenting the bosom for her approval. And oh, it just, I think it's really funny. And I think it kind of sheds a little bit of light on where Harriet is mood wise because when we met her in strong poison she was going through this horrific experience and she was very like deeply beaten down by mm -hmm. all the things that she'd gone through and if you, you probably remember the line in strong poison where she tells peter that she was meant to be a cheerful person and that she could piffle rather well herself Mm -hmm. But it had gotten knocked out of her. And so this is, we're two years after her trial and her acquittal. And her liveliness has come back. You know, like there's a lot more humor. And there's a lot more, I would like joking around feels like mm -hmm. the wrong phrase. Well, I, I think you're hitting on something in, in the sense that in Strong Poison, we never see Harriet as herself. Mm -hmm. um, not only because she's, you know, sort of undergoing something that is psychologically and emotionally really rigorous and intense, but also because nothing is from her point of view, right? It's all right. we 
we see her through Peter and through the, the testimony of her friends. Whereas the way that this book opens, it, there's almost this sense where I always kind of wonder if the first paragraph is sort of in Harriet's voice almost, or like a kind of free and direct discourse of kind of her take on the world. Because as we read more, we find out she's a funny person. She has sort of this dry sense of humor. She can also be rather, you know, sharp and like a tiny bit cynical. And I feel like there's this way in which like the first paragraph sort of mimics that kind of tone. Yeah, it has personality. Yes. Yeah. And I I think that part where you were saying it, it has a touch of the Victorian or like, I always actually think of Jane Austen mm. because it starts with this almost like the seemingly, you know, universal statement, right? Like the best remedy for a bruised heart is not da da da. And, and that always just puts in mind that, you know, it is a truth universally acknowledged. Oh, yeah, you're right. That, yeah, a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And then, and then, the, then taking the air out of that immediately of like, you know, nothing is known about like the single man's perspective on that, but <laughs> like all the, all the matrons of the neighborhood have already decided that, you know, he belongs to this or the other of, of their daughters. And, and I think there's something really similar happening here too, where it's, there's sort of this, yeah, like this highfalutin um, kind of universal <laughs> posited and then sort of immediately like, nope, Harriet, <laughs> Harriet actually the honest work, physical activity and Oh, yeah, money helps um, in making things comfortable. Fancy that. <laughs> Imagine money making life easier. Mm, what? Who could have foreseen? Who could have said? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and we we kind of go on to see Harriet and Peter sort of sharing the narration or the, the perspective from which, you know, we as the readers follow the case. But it starts very, very staunchly with Harriet. And I think in a certain way in her mind, like we're, we're told a lot about what she thinks about and, and how she thinks about it in these early chapters. Yeah, yeah, I really think of this as very much Harriet's book, like even, even though it's divided between her and Peter, I still think of this as like primarily Harriet's book. Like this mm. and Gaudy Night and Bussman's Honeymoon are Harriet books. And Peter is allowed to be there. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is really clever too, I think, in the sense of like a, a craft point of view, right? That like Harriet, the the early sort of delay of her getting to the town and notifying mm-hmm. somebody about the body comes about because she is on a walking tour. She doesn't own a car. So like if it had been Peter finding the body, then, you know, everything would have been over in five seconds because <laughs> he could just get into get into his car and zoom off. Too many resources. Too many to be resources. Yeah. So too close to being Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. But to get back to explaining where Harriet is and what she's doing, mm-hmm. she's on a walking tour, which this is something that culturally we don't really have in the States. And I don't know if it's very common in Britain anymore, but certainly at the time, people for vacation would go on really long walks <laughs> and just walk from town to town, which, yeah, you that's a cer- certainly not where I live in Texas. That's not a thing you can do. I was I was going to say every, everything about where you live conspires against no. this becoming a, a, a no. common activity. <laughs> you cannot walk anywhere, really. I mean, like you can you if you have legs and you're able bodied, but it's not enjoyable. But in England, I can't remember when it was passed, but there there is a law that there are public pathways that 
people are required to keep accessible. Mm -hmm. There's this concept that the citizens of England have a right to go on walks and cross people's fields. And the walking culture is entirely different. Mm -hmm. I think it's built in a lot more even in kind of the education. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about like a certain friend of mine who grew up near Birmingham, did a, it might've been part of Scouts. For girls, it's guide. Yeah. Oh, right. So, but like as part of her growing up in, in being in guides, like there's this whole culminating thing where you basically, yeah, you, you walk and camp and it's, it's like a three day hike or something. And you know, they're, they're really kind of left to, to fend for themselves using the skills that they've been learning all along. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, like at the time when she was doing it, the Duke of Edinburgh would give you a medal. <laughs> Clearly still at least part of the yeah. culture. Which is not to say that we don't, we have nothing like that in the States. I just feel like our version is a lot more intense. You know, like people go and do the Appalachian Trail. Yeah. And yeah. that's like a long walk turned up to 11. Yes. I wonder too if it's that we consider wildernessy things part of recreation like I want to speak carefully there because I'm like oh obviously there's like a long history of people claiming to discover things in this country that were previously undiscovered it's like well clearly no there were people the people who already lived there don't count yeah yeah so acknowledging that even the term like wilderness or the like Teddy Roosevelt being like, oh, let's make these national parks and mm. like move off the people who are living there is, is all bad, bad parts of our history. Yeah. But I, I think there is more of that sense of like, oh, yes, you, if you're going to go for a trek or if you can go backpacking, you go into a place that's like pretty uninhabited. Right. As opposed to you just leave your house. Right. And walk from from town mm-hmm. to town, which like as someone who did her first backpacking trip a couple years ago, I'm like, the, Harriet's version sounds much more delightful. <laughs> so Harriet has gone on a walking tour. She's walking along the coast and she's walking between... Lestenhoe and Wolvercombe, which I believe they're both fictional places. Yes. So there's actually a note in my book before the table of contents that very explicitly calls out that in Five Red Herrings, the plot was invented to fit a real locality. In this book, the locality has been invented to fit the plot. Both places and people are entirely imaginary. So I'm sure that that was a relief. Yeah. (laughs) After the, however much research that five red herrings must have taken i too would be like and now i will make it up yeah it can't be wrong if i make it up i very much never want to you know be like i think the author was thinking this um (laughs) as you know like i don't i don't really subscribe to that kind of literary criticism but i i have to imagine that sayers was a bit like well, I, I did that thing, and uh, <laughs> now now we're back to made-up places. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not do that anymore. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And made-up places it is. Made-up places. But yeah, yeah, so she's yes, she's going between Lestenhoe and Wilvercombe, which is apparently a 16-mile walk along the coast. I don't even want to imagine doing that, but... I understand from my British friends that England is a much more pleasant place to walk because it doesn't hit the same temperatures that it does here where I live. 
It's very true. Oh, I actually, the complete tangent, thinking about walking in England made me think of this. So we we went to London a few years ago, and I I actually ran across uh, the the journal that I was keeping during that time, like the other day while I was cleaning out my desk. And thankfully, past Sharon, knowing that present Sharon has a terrible memory, (laughs) did uh, a little bit of like a memorandum book and and wrote down every day, like what we saw and what we ate and what we went Mm -hmm. to. And I guess we were walking so much that I also felt compelled to put in like how many miles my, (laughs) my phone was saying that we were walking. Um, And like every, every entry ended with like, you know, we're foot sore, but very happy. <laughs> um, and at the end, the tally came out to we walked about 80 miles over the course of nine days, um, which I'm like, I yeah, I, I cannot imagine even being able to do that in the States. <laughs> uh, so I can I can attest to the fact that it, it is quite pleasant to walk in England. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And also like, when you're younger, because, you know, I did my study abroad semester so many years ago. And I know for a fact that I walked clear across Edinburgh, mm-hmm. you know, like starting from Edinburgh Castle and wandering around the city and then going up Arthur's seat and down again mm-hmm. and getting extremely lost. <laughs> so I'm just like, I know that I spent an entire day walking basically back and forth across the entirety of Edinburgh. And in retrospect, I'm like, I don't, how, how did I do that? Because the, and you know, a few years ago when I went back to Edinburgh with a friend, we barely made it up the Royal Mile. Mm-hmm. We were like collapsing. We we're just like, please, someone put us in a wheelbarrow, take us back to the hotel. <laughs> We've become old. We have. I'm, I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure Harriet is younger than the two of us in, <laughs> in this book. So, uh, <laughs> Which is which is also like a horrifying realization, given that, you know, we've been reading about her since we were in our teens. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, Sorry, I keep interrupting. You're trying to tell our listeners about the plot. What plot? Who needs plot? Let's just reminisce about the times that we've traveled since neither of us have left our houses very much for the month, except for important things like Mm -hmm. protesting and going to work as necessary. Yes. But what happens to Harriet is that she's walking along. Oh, here it is. It says that she's 28. Ugh, a baby. Ugh. A, no wonder. Front. 16 miles is a breeze when you're 28. I knew. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, I would think how I think I was 28 when I could barely make it up the Royal Mile. But also I was severely anemic and hadn't been diagnosed yet. So that'll do it (laughs) yeah so I'm just like severely anemic and trying to take this trip and I was exhausted the whole time yes so Harriet is 28 and we get more of a description of Harriet than we did in Strong Poison you know we kind of got a really brief character sketch Mm -hmm. of her and here we get this description that she was 28 years old dark slight with a skin naturally a little sallow but now tanned to an agreeable biscuit color by sun and wind and it also tells us that she's dressed sensibly in a short skirt and thin sweater and carried in addition to a change of linen and an extra provision of footwear little else beyond a pocket edition of tristram shandy a vest pocket camera a small first aid outfit and a sandwich lunch and i'm like other than other than a change of undergarments does she not have another outfit (laughs) um 
She seems not to. Which is interesting. Yeah. So I'm just like, is that what a walking holiday is? <laughs> yeah. I, I do not know. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just something that I stumbled over this time. I'm just like, wait a second. Does she only have one outfit? <laughs> You know you're getting older when (laughs) you're like, how many miles? And I mean, I I think I think it does definitely give the sense that, you know, she's not these tours aren't meant to be like very strenuous physical activity, right? It's supposed to be maybe more of a nice meander. Yeah, it's very mild and Mm -hmm. but it's not the Appalachian Trail. No. (laughs) So she walks for a while and when it gets to be lunchtime, she decides to kind of go down she finds a place to climb down to the beach, which is mm-hmm. like she's been walking along the cliffs kind of above the shore. So she climbs down to a kind of a secluded area and has her lunch and she dozes off. And when she wakes up, you know, she decides to walk along the beach and she comes across the body of a man who is lying on an isolated rock mm-hmm. with his throat quite profoundly cut extremely cut yeah Yeah. like I do want to talk about the fact that I think this is one of the more gruesomely described of Mm -hmm. Sayers's corpses we've talked a lot previously about how she can often kind of give the impression of horror through dialogue or through some like kind of side along details but this is this is really one where we're like along with Harriet kind of looking directly at a so it's yeah the quotation at the beginning of the chapter is the track was slippery with spouting blood mm-hmm. which should have clued us in yeah it's so different from like clouds of witness we're just like yeah there's blood everywhere but we don't need to talk about it. Mm-hmm. so but do you want to yeah i can t- and tell our listeners what's going on <laughs> i'll describe the scene a little bit harriet dozes off it's really interesting to me that like the paragraph ends, she dozed off. And then the very next paragraph begins, she was awakened suddenly by what seemed to be a shout or a cry almost in her ear. And we'll find out later that, you know, a lot about figuring out the culprit and the whodunit and the howdunit of this crime depends on the question of like when the victim was actually murdered. So I think it's interesting here that the the dozing off and the waking happens within the space between a paragraph. Um, But like Harriet, we, the reader, have no idea kind of how much time has passed, right? Like we're so affected through her point of view that that we are also left unsure. Um, She does glance down at her wristwatch and notices that it's almost two o'clock. And then I love this line. There is something about virgin sand which arouses all the worst instincts of the the detective story writer. One feels an irresistible impulse to go and make footprints all over it. The excuse which the professional mind makes to itself is that the sand affords a grand opportunity for observation and experiment. So yeah, so Harriet just goes like bounding along, making footprints and talking to herself. And then she spots, as you said, this this like really large rock that it's apparent that like when the tide is in, there's probably only a little bit of it that is exposed. But because the tide is out, there's... Harriet is kind of able to walk all the way up to it. And she at first thinks that somebody, she, she like sees a figure there and she thinks, oh, but like that's a really uncomfortable place to nap. And then as she gets closer and closer, she says, now if I had any luck, he'd be a corpse and I should report him and get my name in the papers. That'd be something like publicity. Well-known woman detective writer finds mystery corpse, mystery corpse on lonely shore. But these things never happen to authors. Uh, and of course, you know, she, she like walks up and 
what has happened to her, but she finds a corpse and it says Harriet's luck was in. It was a corpse, not the sort of corpse there could be any doubt about either. Mr. Samuel Ware of Lion's Inn, whose throat they cut from ear to ear, could not have been more indubitably a corpse. Indeed, if the head did not come off in Harriet's hands, it was only because the spine was intact, for the larynx and all the great vessels of the neck had been severed to the house bone, and a frightful stream, bright red and glistening, was running over the surface of the rock and dripping into a little hollow below. And Harriet puts her head down, or no, she, not, wait, ugh, no, she does not put her head down, she puts the head down, <laughs> and feels suddenly sick, which is always a bit how I feel as well after reading that, because it is, yeah, it's, it's really, really gruesome. Mm -hmm. So never let it be said that Sayers could not write a, a very disturbing corpse discovery if she, if she wanted to. But yeah, but then Harriet, there's, I mean, there's also like a lot of meta narrative here, right? Where she's, there's a lot of reference to her profession as a de detective writer. And she thinks to herself, what would Lord Peter Whimsey do in such a case? Or, of course, Robert Templeton. <laughs> Uh, who is the the hero of Harriet, like the Harriet's fictional hero and detective in her in her novels? So she very much banishes Lord Peter from her mind. And <laughs> but he did arrive first. He did arrive first, and she also thinks as she's examining the body that like you know how convenient it is in her books that she can give Robert Templeton all of this knowledge about like rigor mortis and this and that and that she herself like doesn't actually know any of this like she doesn't actually have to know what the temperature of the body is supposed to be or what it means or mm -hmm. so making clear kind of the amount of work that's involved in in writing a detective novel and yeah yeah and i love the fact that there's a reference where she's like if if she had ever written a book about tides she would know all about them because she would have researched it but she doesn't Mm -hmm. And she'd avoided it on purpose so that she wouldn't have to deal with it. <laughs> Whereas the tide obviously is it's crucial to this mystery. And Sayers obviously did have to spend some time mm -hmm. thinking about tides and tide tables. Tide tables. Can't get away from. Cannot escape. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because then the next chapter is Harriet trying to get down the road like after after she's photographed the corpse and mm -hmm. you know searched the pockets as well as she's able um she and she's looked for a, a weapon and found the a razor a mm -hmm. cutthroat razor yes um kind of in that hollow basin below the corpse and you know she even had the the wherewithal to so she notices a set of footprints and you know she takes off a shoe and tries to match the the footprints to make sure that they belong to the body because throughout she's the question is like, well, did he come and commit suicide or was this corpse lured out here and murdered? And then, you know, but there's only one set of footprints and it was not when Jesus carried the corpse. <laughs> um, it it uh, seems to be to match the, at least the shoes that the body is wearing. But, you know, there are also some other things that don't match up. Like he's wearing, the body is also wearing gloves. So Harriet's thinking like, well, who... You know, if someone is trying to commit suicide, like, why why would they wear gloves and et cetera, et cetera. And then in the next chapter, she sets off down the road because she's trying to find someone, anyone who can come and, like, no basically notify the officials and maybe go down and, like, pull the body off the rocks before the tide comes in. And it's it's a really... I think wonderful chapter in in the sense of the form because Harriet is so frustrated. I mean, she runs into people who like 
don't seem to care, don't seem to know, have no telephones in their cottages. And I think, again, there's this way in which like we as the reader, because we are so closely in her point of view, like we feel that same frustration of like, this person, oh no, they're they're useless. Like this person, she you know she <laughs> runs into a guy on the road who is like, oh, I I'm you know I'm also on a walking tour. I I can't help you. And Harriet thinks to herself, with a foolish relic of Victorianism, she had somehow imagined that a man would display superior energy and resourcefulness. But after all, he was only a human being with the usual outfit of legs and brains. <laughs> And at one point, she's like, Harriet wondered why she was asking about the trains, which I have to believe is a bit of a callback to the previous <laughs> book. But yes, with, with all of that roundaboutness, eventually she gets to a, a grocer uh, who has a telephone. Yeah, she doesn't make it all the way to Wilvercombe, but she gets to mm-hmm. a, there's a small village on the way there that has a grocer with a telephone. Yes. Where she finally gets in contact with the police. Yes. She calls the Wilvercombe police station and reports that she has found a body. And this is, what is it, five hours later? Mm -hmm. I think so, because she's had to like double back a bit. Well, because she's going along all the lanes on the road, right, to try Mm -hmm. to see if they're their cottages or or people who have cars and so forth. So there's just, yeah, there's a lot of back and forth. Yeah. She's trying to put it in the hands of the police. She also calls the press right afterward but mm-hmm. maybe before we get into that i'm <laughs> i'll just throw this out Karis, are detective novels police propaganda <laughs> i obviously this is something that isn't necessarily consistent with all mystery novels yes sorry i i asked that in the most uh <laughs> enraging way possible <laughs> But I would say that many of them are, or they portray the police as incompetent and harmless, which is not the same as propaganda, but does kind of downplay mm-hmm. what the the police and what police presence in the world can be like for many people. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you know, we also, we know that policing in Great Britain now and and particularly also at the time that Sayers was writing looks very very different than mm-hmm. what we have in the states. Yeah, I mean what we have in the states is quite different from most countries in the world. But yeah, I think there is a, I, I think in in detective novels where there are private detectives, mm-hmm. there's often a kind of showing up of like the stupid police person who who can't see through the alibi or or even the the police person who sort of foils or goes against the detective, you know, kind of thinking mm-hmm. back to whose body and Inspector Sug. Yeah. Or like all, there were so many policemen and five red herrings and they're all wrong. They're the sort of like affable, buffoonish police officer, if not being, I mean, prop- yeah, propaganda was probably the wrong word to use for it. But <laughs> to to present, I guess where I'm trying to, to suss out or get to is that the like media depictions of any profession do not happen in a vacuum right and they are not interpreted in a vacuum and so there's a way in which like if if all of our media depictions of police are either oh they're great law-abiding officers or you know law enforcement officers I guess who help law-abiding citizens and solve all their cases I mean like the solve rates on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and CSI are like astronomical and not real or they're they're incompetent and buffoonish but you know good-hearted and da 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 da. that has a real world effect yeah right and it and it comes from a perspective I mean many people are pointing out right now in the world like the 
the ability to depict or understand the police as like always a good presence, always representing the side of justice also comes from like a privileged position. Mm -hmm. I've said it before that one of my other favorite authors is Terry Pratchett. And Mm -hmm. some of my favorite Terry Pratchett books are the ones that deal with the city watch in with series within the series of Mm -hmm. books that focus on the watch. And I feel like the thing that sets that portrayal apart is that the characters really self-examine. Sam Vimes is one of my favorite literary characters and he he thinks a lot about what the watch is for and who the watch serves. I should have looked this up before I started talking because I can't remember now which book it's in. I think it might be a night watch. But at one point he's thinking about privilege and he thinks to himself that like privilege just means private law. Mm-hmm. Like literally and figuratively. Yeah, like yeah. It, it, it just means that you get to decide what the law is mm. and how it's enforced. And that it's important to him that he lead the watch in a, in a way that means like the law applies to everyone. But, you know, like there's very much this idea that like constantly challenging yourself to be like, who are you serving? Mm-hmm. You know, like what principle are you serving? Like, are you obeying politicians or are you obeying the law like are you serving the people or are you serving you know something else right capitalism or yeah or like your own place in society yeah Mm -hmm. like are you supporting privilege which is private law and people getting to decide what the law is based on their power or are you obeying a law that applies to everyone and is an equalizing force Mm -hmm. Which is such a, I mean, you know, I, I know we're talking, like, I want to be very careful not to read backwards, right? Like, right. But I think that dovetails really nicely with discussions that we've had previously with regards to Peter and how Peter's sense of justice and morality aren't, like, we've, we've seen books where, like, that doesn't match up with what... Mm-hmm with what the police are theorizing. Yeah. And I want, and there is something to untangle there. Cause I, I think, I don't think Sayers ever, I, I don't think she does a one-to-one. Like, I don't think we're meant to think like, Oh, because Peter is aristocratic. That's why he has like a finer moral sensibility. Right. Like we've mm-hmm. obviously seen from the, the people in his family <laughs> that that is not the equation, um, which I think some other books of this period and prior fall into a bit of like, oh, yes, the nobility are inherently noble, or like people rise to, you know, sort of these positions in life, because they are better, more moral than other people. Like, I don't, I don't think Sayers is saying that at all. I think she's saying there is something innate about Peter's sensibility and his the care with which he approaches the world and his ability to empathize with lots of different kinds of temperaments and people of different classes and backgrounds that suits him to sort of like be the the avatar of justice, I suppose, even when the when the police can't be and and, and him feeling that veil come up between himself and Parker. Yeah. But I also yeah, I wonder if there's a way to in which like that portrayal can also be, I don't know, like dangerous if taken too far in the world because in, in in a way, what we're saying is like Peter is unto himself a private kind of law. Right. Right. And, you know, and we've talked a little bit about like the fact that he's the detective and that in general, the detective in 
mystery novels is the like the arbiter of justice Mm -hmm. and that's a a role that they play you know like you think of like Poirot doing (laughs) doing his summation at the end of a case right or or Miss Marple saying like I am nemesis right yeah at one point the nemesis to to evildoers and so like the fact that the it's it's I feel like the the measurement in mystery novels is the fact that the detective being the one who is smart enough to figure out the crime is what gives them the right mm-hmm. to be the arbiter of justice. Like, I feel like that's kind of like a thing that an unspoken law that's underneath, Yeah. which like, I don't know what that says about like extrapolating that to like a, a broader and like, I don't even know if extrapolating from that to like kind of a, like a broader worldview would even make sense because yeah. we're talking about, a genre that has its own rules and these things operate within those rules. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but like you said, nothing exists in a vacuum. And like, what do we take away from this when, when we read within this genre and then we, you know, look up into the real world and we've been seeing things through this lens. Right. And I, I think there is, you know, I mean, there are real world movements or like real historical people who, who did take that stance of like, I'm smarter than other people. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, thinking back to like terrible conversations about eugenics that were happening at the time that Sarah's was writing. Right. And the, that attitude of like that, that like a, a small set of people had the right to interfere with other people's bodily autonomy because they thought of themselves as being clever or more intelligent or more Mm -hmm. dedicated to, you know, the human race in some way, which I'm not saying, yeah, I'm definitely not saying there's a lot, there's like a direct line between reading mystery novels and, <laughs> and, and that horrific attitude. But I, I think it's something that I am interested, I think, just for myself, as we reread to, to kind of tease out, like, you know, how is it that most people read mystery fiction and come across these attitudes and are able to leave it as, as you said, like, this is a trope of detective novels, right? That the Mm -hmm. detective is smarter than everybody else. And how is it that some people take that as like, this is the way the world should be like that the, the intelligent or the, the rich or the whoever should rule over the rest of us. And, and, you know, maybe those people aren't reading enough mystery novels, or at least the the complicated ones, like the ones that Sayers is writing, where, you know, Peter is constantly wondering what right he has to, yeah. to actually bring about justice. Yeah, which, you know, I can't think of another mystery novel that does that. You know, I can't mm-hmm. think of another detective that has that same struggle, which is not to say that there are none, but I can't think of any. Yeah, I feel like ton of friends. I mean, granted, I don't read a lot of contemporary thriller mysteries. I feel like ton of French does come close because mm-hmm. her mysteries are such like deep psychological portraits of the detectives involved. And she certainly has tackled like, you know, there's one book of hers I'm thinking of in particular, where it's it's kind of all about corruption within the police force, right? Yeah. But, but yeah, I don't I can't think of certainly like none of Sayers's contemporaries are ending their books with the the detectives <laughs> having psychological breakdowns because of the responsibility they've taken upon themselves. Yeah. I'm sorry, I took us off on like a really long Yeah, sad but I mean tangent. like you know, you know it was it's on our minds. I'm sure it's on our listeners' minds and yeah. it's it doesn't hurt anyone to stop and interrogate what you consume, mm-hmm. you know. But uh where do we go from there? 
Yes. We don't have a segue. Uh, we do not have a segue, but I think 20 minutes ago or whenever I started off on that, uh, <laughs> I said that we, you know, Harriet calls the police and then she calls the press, uh, which I, yes. I think might be an interesting thing to talk about next because I I will confess that, I mean, it's not really even a confession. I guess I'll just like by dint of the fact that Gaudy Night is one of my favorite books ever, not just one of my favorite Lord Peter books and that I was you know, working on a chapter about it for my dissertation, that's the Harriet Peter book I've read the most. And it's interesting. And, you know, I think we could we could talk also more about how maybe some of the characterization of Harriet keeps evolving. But my, my sense of Harriet from that book has always been that she very much wanted to avoid publicity or notoriety, or that she felt a certain sense of shame and embarrassment, at least to go back to Oxford with the with this kind of notoriety hanging over her, right? That she was yeah. publicly tried for murdering her lover and that it, you know, so that everybody knew that she was living with someone out of wedlock and so forth. So it's always interesting to me. I always find myself like my brain sort of like has a brief halt every time I reread <laughs> Have His Carcass and I see her calling the press and being like, oh yes, you know, Harriet Vane, that's Harriet with two R's, like the detective novelist, <laughs> this is my new book. Um, please make sure to note that I found the body. Like I, I, I often kind of don't know what to make of it. Yeah. I think uh, this is something we'll be able to talk about more when we get to Gaudy Night. <laughs> when we oh. do our year long series on Gaudy Night. <laughs> but in Gaudy Night, she's going back to a place from her past, you know, and she's going back to interact with people who knew her before her life mm-hmm. took a scandalous turn. And I think that that's where a lot of the shame that she feels in that book originates. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this book, the Harriet Vane is kind of in the middle of nowhere and she's not around people who know her. She's not around her peers. She's not around her friends. And she, I feel like she has this, you know, she's described as like hesitating. She calls the police and then she is kind of with the telephone and she hesitates before she calls. And I think that she kind of has a moment where she's just like, the police are going to know who I am. Soon everyone in the town is going to know who I am. Mm-hmm. Everyone is going to stare at me and whisper about me anyway. So I might as well get some publicity out of this. Right. You know, may as well try to sell some books. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's very much that attitude of like, I'm in this situation and I might as well use it to my advantage because because otherwise it's just going to be un- a lot of unpleasantness, mm-hmm. which you know, she's, she's kind of had an upbeat attitude when she was jokingly saying to herself, if I have any luck, it will be a corpse. And when she's talking to the police and she, I think she said something about like, well, I want to be in on it because it's good publicity for me. And they're just like, but then when they find out her name, <laughs> it's uh, they come to the inspector seem to come to attention rather suddenly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I think maybe, maybe there is this aspect of like, because so much was out of her control in yeah. in that case and in strong poison that she's she's trying to to maintain some amount of of control not not necessarily even reputational control but just like right. hey I if this is going to happen then then I might as well be the person to set it off in motion yeah well and I'll, you know like it gives her the opportunity to set the tone mm-hmm. and to 
to set the tone for the narrative. Like not, I mean, like really she's like feeding the person the story, yeah. like word for word. So like it gives her an opportunity to shape the narrative. That's true. And I think that that's something that's really important to Harriet as a person because the narrative surrounding her trial, she didn't have any control over. Mm-hmm. You know, she cooperated with the police. She didn't, she knew that she was innocent. And so she just, you know, she didn't feel like she had anything to hide. And so she didn't hide anything. And still all the circumstantial evidence was against her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're prepared to send her to the gallows. Right. Just just because they didn't have a better solution. Yep. So <laughs> I guess that answers our question of, uh, <laughs> are the police ever bad in Dorothy Sayers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, mm-hmm. they are. And yeah. I mean, like, we have talked about how much we love Parker. We mm-hmm. love Charles Parker. And he is a good policeman, but he is still the police and he's still part of the machinery of the police, which I think is really key to that moment in Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club when he and Peter have that awkward moment where, you know, like a, a rift kind of forms between them and that we never quite see that in Strong Poison, you know, like they're on good terms, but we don't see them the same camaraderie that we did in like clouds of witness yeah and and parker really kind of falls out of the narrative right peter yeah peter marries him off to mary so he reichenbachs uh parker (laughs) through marriage there but there was just that moment where peter suddenly sees parker as the police Mm -hmm. and it's just like oh you are part of this machinery and there is a a way in which I can't trust you because your loyalty is to to the machinery of the police. Mm-hmm. So, and then you think about the fact that Parker was probably involved in Harriet's arrest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we talked about it's to his credit that he was anxious to have it corrected, but mm-hmm. it's still like mm, you made this mistake and this person very nearly died for it. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of fan fictions, I really want to read the like lost scene of Harriet and Parker meeting mm. for the first time socially through <laughs> Peter after all of that. Ooh. Right? Oh, let's be in-laws. And this is not weird at all. Let's we'll oh, just someone write that, that for me. Interrogated me for murder. <laughs> I would just like to commission fan fictions from now on. <laughs> Back to the book, my goodness! Oh this yeah, we were talking not be about a so book. Hard to talk about. We love this book. We love this book, but it is so hard to focus on anything right now. It is truly that. That's just that is just the facts. Yes, focusing on anything is hard, and yes. and that's fair. Yes, but something you said about Harriet wanting to control the narrative, I think, mm. is really key and important and and something I'd like us to keep in mind as we move forward because I I do think this book is so interested in the narratives that people construct for themselves the narratives that they try to inhabit I mean I know we've talked about this in Clouds of Witness that Mary Whimsy was sort of trying on these different personas right and I think Mm -hmm. as Harriet is observing the people at the the hotel because turns out the corpse was a dancer, a professional dancer at a hotel in Wilvercombe. And Harriet is sort of watching these little tableaus of like, kind of like lonely, older women coming to that hotel and Mm -hmm. dancing with these younger, I mean, the book calls them gigolos. Um, I don't think it has the same implication, (laughs) necessarily. (laughs) But you know, these these young foreign 
men who are dancers and she's kind of watching a show of like a an outdated almost predatory and terrible femininity that these women put on and so like that's there's I feel like there's a narrative about gender that she's watching there's a narrative about like mercenary marriage um, that Mm -hmm. certainly of course is going to impact her relationship to Peter once he shows up there are narratives that the dancers tell themselves about this is like a stepping stone to better things everybody in this book is kind of spinning a story about who they are and, and how they belong in the world and so I think yeah it makes a lot of sense that I mean, I don't, you know, Harriet isn't doing this. And I think most of the characters aren't doing this in like a malicious way. But right. But yeah. you know, like, it's kind of like you go on vacation and you kind of try out different behaviors. You know, I I do not know. I feel like on vacation, I nap and read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I guess like, I'm not speaking from experience either. But, mm. you know, like, <laughs> I just realized that I'm thinking of the beginning of Greece. <laughs> where it's just like uh, you meet on the summer vacation and you're behaving like a totally different person than you mm. are in your everyday high school life and the never the two shall meet that's true yes. you know uh, yeah. or that feeling I think that some people have when they when they go to college or move to a different city right that somehow yeah you're yeah. like and you have that start. chance to reinvent yourself mm-hmm. compartmentalizing your life and in like in some ways putting on a performance mm-hmm. so you like Wilvercombe is gets a resort town it's a spa town but it's not very fashionable and it's mostly elderly people and so it's kind of got this outdated gentility and everyone is kind of putting you know like especially in the lounge of the hotel mm-hmm. you know because Harriet goes she's like I am not staying at a hostel or anything I'm going to go to the nicest hotel yes <laughs> because <laughs> That's where I need to be when the newspapers show up. Mm-hmm. So she goes to this nice hotel and she ends up in the lounge where, you know, like they have waltzing, which is the the type of dancing that the professionals dancers are doing. Mm-hmm. Which is a very yeah. outdated dance at very, this point. A very outdated <laughs> type of entertainment. Yeah. People are wearing old fashioned clothes and there's like fans and ostrich feathers and old-fashioned mm-hmm. flirting and right she's all... at long skirts and costumes of the 70s were in evidence yeah. which i can only imagine she means the 1870s yes and yeah and she talks about like corsets and mm-hmm. and bustles and you know so it's like this idea that everyone is there to play dress up yeah you know like uh, the comparison that comes to my mind is like the renaissance fair because that's my experience with this type of thing <laughs> You know, like you Huzzah. go to a Renaissance fair, you put on a bodice, you mm-hmm. push your cleavage up, and you flirt with strangers in a way that you normally never would. And it's it's just, it's different because it's the the Renaissance fair. Yes. And you eat a turkey leg, and then you go home, and you're normal. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's carnival-esque, right? It's yeah. that, like, Bactinian point about, like, carnival, any, any place where... There's an expectation that you're, you know, in costume and that somehow you're, you're kind of throwing off the, the strictures or the, the expectations of Mm -hmm. the society at large. And it's a place where people can kind of, it's not even like a freedom to be your, your real self. It's a freedom to be a different self. Right. And like, it's a game and like Harriet observes that it's a game and she, she makes the comment to herself. She's like, oh, well, they know the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like it. this is all fake, but it's fine because everyone knows. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, like that atmosphere, I think, is a really interesting place to set a novel. Like I am literally right now for the first time about how the place is a character in Mm. this book, just as much as it is in Clouds of Witness or in Five Red Herrings. But it like it really is, you know, like the the watering hole and like spa town atmosphere is very much a part of the story. Mm-hmm. And it really like informs the plot. And I don't know, like I didn't have I didn't have a formed thought there because this <laughs> is this is me having a thought in real time. Yay. And this is how my thoughts go. They did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I there's something I think going back to that tie to Jane Austen that we kind of noticed in the first paragraph. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. people in Jane Austen are always going to the shore to misbehave. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, But I I think there's something, I mean, you know, we could, we could put more of a lampshade on like the shore as a liminal place where Mm. the water and the land meet and boundaries are murky. And so identity becomes shifting. La 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 la. (laughs) Like, we, we could do that thing, but I, I think... If someone would like to write us the paper, we will... Yeah, we will read it um, <laughs> with great interest. But I think there... Yeah, there is something really interesting about, like, choosing choosing the shore as a, as a set. And, and Sayers, I think, does increasingly, like, pay attention to place and location, right, in, mm-hmm. in these books. I mean... I guess we we first see it sort of in in clouds of witness as that like country house kind of setting, right. but like yeah, thinking about the meticulous attention to place in five red herrings, thinking about Wilvercombe as um, a setting that is also like really realized in this book and almost a character murder must advertise like you we go back to London but it's like the very specific setting of a publicity it's almost like a different London than the London we've been in before yeah it's so it's so lovingly detailed whereas Mm -hmm. I mean in whose body it's like well we could kind of be in any city and then obviously Gaudy Knight being the Oxford book and Nine Taylors being very drawn from like the landscape of Sayers's childhood and and all of that. So I don't know. There's another paper in that. I'm sure someone somewhere can write. <laughs> and we would be happy to read all the papers. <laughs> and write none of them ourselves. <laughs> yeah, none of them ourselves. Yeah. We are old. We don't do that anymore. We do not. <laughs> days are behind us. Like on that note, I think we might want to devote six episodes to have his carcass. <laughs> because it's a, it's a longer book. Yeah, it's a longer book. And I think that we might need the time Mm -hmm. because we're going to talk about more than the book. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think we should just give ourselves the space. Yeah, I think that that feels fair. In some ways, it might be a good a good moment to pause and reflect on not just the larger themes that we're noticing, but how the exercise of of reading a series that we both love so much this closely and in some ways during a time of like a lot of upheaval in the world, like what that does to our reading practice, how that changes our perception of these books and so forth. I don't think anyone, hopefully no one will mind. They mind, they don't have to listen, I guess. (laughs) This is our podcast. Yes. It's not monetized. It is definitely not monetized. (laughs) Well, Cars, you and I have been talking very much at length. Uh, yes I hope our listeners don't mind the fact that you know you and I just had to had to share some thoughts and yeah um, sometimes you just need to talk to your friends sometimes you just need to talk to your friends and I think this is one of them yes 
But we have managed to get through three chapters of this book. (laughs) Uh, We will attempt to do better next time, dear listeners. Clearly, we're going to probably devote more than four episodes to have his carcass. Because there is a lot to talk about. And we love this book. But we hope that if you needed a distraction hearing us ramble about our various trips to England <laughs> uh, was a was a good reprieve. And if you, you know, wanted to think about the role of policing and detective fiction, then here you go. Um, but next time... Please write we'll, us a paper. Please write us a paper. But yeah, next time we'll be back and um, we'll pick up right when Lord Peter comes waltzing in to... Almost literally. Almost literally, yes, to following the siren call of a corpse. Um, yes, and yeah, we'll focus a, a bit more on the the mystery at hand. <laughs> the book itself. Yes. Yes. Oh, are we talking about a book? What? Is that what this <laughs> podcast is about? Oh. Surprise. Someone should have told us. Yeah. Uh, we do hope you'll, you'll join us in two weeks for whatever is going to come to our brains next. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy, W-I-M-S-E-Y. And you can find transcripts and show notes of our episodes on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And we also hope that you'll tell all your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. Join us next time for more Talking Piffle. Mm-hmm.